want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest community, I'm so excited to introduce you to a remastered episode of the DealQuest podcast. The podcast has grown so much. We started it about five years ago now, at least at the point I'm recording this. In the beginning, had maybe 60 or 80 listeners per episode. We now have many multiples of that. In fact, we've got almost 100 times that. And I realized that there were so many great interviews I did early on in the podcast. In fact, in the first year of the podcast, it wasn't even called uh, DealQuest. It was called Fueling Deals until we rebranded it. And we interviewed some amazing entrepreneurs and deal makers and just amazing stories, amazing content. And I know that so many of our listeners have joined us over the last several years and may not have heard some of those earlier episodes from five years ago, four years ago, even three years ago. So we have picked the best of those old episodes and the advice and the stories and the experiences are timeless. So we've remastered them, made sure the audio is great and put in our new intro and outro and that kind of stuff. And we're going to be re-releasing some of these amazing episodes. So look out for them from time to time. And here's one coming up right now. My guest today is Brian Smith. Brian has charted his own course to become one of the great entrepreneurial success stories of our time. In 1978, he imported six pairs of sheepskin boots from Australia with a dream to build a business where every American would eventually be wearing the product. That's how one of the world's most recognizable brands began. And sales of UGG products have exceeded a billion dollars in each of the past six years. Today, Brian enjoys guiding entrepreneurs and business professionals on their journeys to success by sharing lessons he learned while building the UGG brand. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to have, have you on, Brian. Listeners, Brian and I met a couple of years back when I saw him speak at a high-end event in LA, and we spoke afterwards and hit it off and ended up exchanging books. And then I brought him into New York to speak to Entrepreneurs Organization New York. And he had such a great entrepreneurial story and a wonderful journey of building, as you heard, a billion-dollar-plus brand from nothing. So we're going to be talking about that. And of course, this is a deals podcast, so we're going to be talking about some of the types of deals he did along the way and and also the ones that worked and that failed. And I think Brian had said to me at some point that he doesn't actually consider himself to be really great at deals. So we'll delve into that as well, which is how you build a billion dollar brand without being great at deals. So it is great. So Brian, before we get to the story of Uggs and what you're doing now, uh, I want to take you back. And when you were a little kid growing up, what did you want to be? Because I don't know, my guess is running a billion dollar company and then selling it may not have been on your mind when you were a kid, but maybe it was. I don't know. No, I was not very entrepreneurial when I started out. I, I 
also wasn't very career oriented. And when I left high school, my uh, dad finally put the pressure on me to get a good steady job. So I joined an accounting firm and, and began studying to become a chartered accountant, which is equivalent to a CPA here in America. And boy, I hated it. <laughs> but I, my nature is not to give up. So I did that for 10 years until I graduated. And I quit the day I did graduate because I was sick of corporate. And I really had this feeling to go out and do something for myself. Well, the second question I often ask on the podcast is, what was your first real business? However, you consider that. And so in that case, was UGG your first real business? Or did you have any yes, kind of business was. before that? Yeah. No, it was the first one. But even when I was an accountant, I can remember being in line at the sandwich shop and I'd be counting how many people were in line and what the speed of turnover was for making sandwiches. And I'd calculate the profit of a sandwich and try and figure out if that would be a good business. <laughs> you know, So I, I was always really intrigued by the break-even point of how many X's do you have to sell at certain profit to make a pay all the overheads and start to make a living. So I think that inquisitiveness was what turned me into being an entrepreneur. Oh, that's great. So I definitely want to want you to tell that story. But before we get there, let's just uh, let people know what you do now, because I know you, you got this amazing book out on uh, on the birth of a brand that you do in speaking. Tell us a little right. bit about what you do now after you've sold the company some years, years back. Yeah, I, I make my living speaking from the stage and I love it. And I never intended to be a speaker, but when I wrote my book about building the UG brand, you know, called The Birth of a Brand, it was such a hit that everybody kept saying, oh, my God, you got to go on stage, Brian, and publicize this. So I was drawn to speaking, kicking and screaming, but it turns out I'm really good at it, and audiences love the messages that I send out because they're very inspirational and motivational. And... Differing from most speakers who say, I built this and I sold it for millions and I built that and I sold it for more millions. I talk about the underbelly of the entrepreneurial um, path, which is where did you screw up? And here's my story. Don't feel bad. You can't possibly be worse off than I was. <laughs> and that's what I think is the, the draw for people to really like me on stage. No question. And I've seen you a couple of times. Like I said in the intro, after I saw you in LA, I brought you to New York. And I agree. The story is... One of my favorite talks, by the way. Yeah, That's great. That's great. Yeah. And and people have loved it. And it's a great entrepreneurial story. So yes, let's get into it a little bit. So so you quit the day after you get licensed or whatever they call it out there as a chartered accountant. And after 10 years, you come to the States and you decide you're going to sell sheepskin boots. Tell us about how that happened. Even that was a process. And and I've I got to tell you, I'm always guided by my inner spirit and it speaks to me in the form of goosebumps every time I have a good idea or a new initiative or something. And I remember figuring what could I do and and I just heard the brand new Pink Floyd song and it was, and then one day you find 10 years have got behind you, no one told you when to run, you missed the starting gun and I got goosebumps there and realized, shit, I've been running on the spot for 10 years. And a few weeks later, I got more goosebumps when I was meditating, trying to figure out what I'd do. And, and I thought, wow, all the big trends are coming from California. So I decided, okay, I'm going to listen to the goosebumps. I'm going to California. I'm going to find the next big thing to bring back to Australia. And I did. 
And I was in California for three or four months looking for the next big thing. And I remember being up at Malibu surfing because I had always been a big dream of mine. And it was October, November, and the wind was getting cold and the water was chilly. And I was pulling on my sheepskin boots on the beach. And I went, oh, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear. So that was another huge goosebump moment. And, And so I did my first deal. I called up a manufacturer in Australia and bought six pairs of samples from him and got a deal to be his distributor. And that was really the birth of, of UGG. Yeah. So let me stop you there. Let's just talk about that first deal, right? So you're, how old are you at this point? 29. All right. So you're 29. It's 1978. You, you, you go to California. Now you call this manufacturer in Australia and you say, hey, I'm a 29-year-old kid. I want to be your distributor in the US. How does that deal get done? <laughs> he didn't want to do it at first, but luck plays such a great part in everything. And he, he took down all my details and he called up the Department of Trade in Perth in Western Australia and was trying to get some information on me. And by pure fluke, he happened to talk to a, a buddy of mine who I played rugby with before I left. <laughs> and uh, he gave me the greatest recommendation. And, and so the deal was done purely out of luck because there were a lot of other people in America looking to buy boots from him, so he said. Ah, so it's great. Okay, so now you have a manufacturer lined up, but you've just you've just ordered samples for six pairs. What happens then? I was with a buddy. We were going to start this together, and we realized we needed capital to buy 500 pairs of samples, or 500 pairs of product. And my roommate overheard me talking and said, hey, there's some guys at my office looking for investments. And just like that, without a business plan or anything in writing, we just on the enthusiasm that I had for how big it was going to be, they put in 20 grand, which I believe in today's terms is about 70,000. So it was a lot of money. And we did a 50-50 deal and started business that way. I love it. So what's become a a billion dollar plus in revenue company started on a getting a manufacturer through luck, (laughs) a luck of him speaking to somebody you knew who knew you and then and then a buddy of yours and a, and a roommate and twenty and twenty thousand dollars. So they put in twenty thousand. They get fifty percent of the company. Any kind of documentation on that? How, how did you do that deal, quote unquote? Yeah, we we went to the lawyers and got a partnership yeah. agreement drawn up. Great. So it, it, that capital lasted us for a couple of years because it wasn't an instant hit. The first retailers, no shoe stores, wanted to know about sheepskin in California. And But the surf shops were really keen because all the California surfers who'd been to Australia on their surf trips had brought some back for their buddies. So within the surf market, was really well known. So that's why Doug and I, did. my, you know, my buddies decided to raise the money and bring in 500 pairs. And so we went back to the surf shops who told us it was going to be so fantastic to sell them all. And they go, oh, man, yeah, congratulations. But we couldn't sell them in our store. We only sell surfboards and trunks and sandals. Good luck with the shoe stores, man. So our first year sales was 28 pairs, if you can believe that. So that's a, that's a great lesson, right? Everybody says they're interested to laugh the right. It's a great idea to laugh the right yeah, check. Right? We should have asked for orders up front. <laughs> but then again, if I hadn't asked for orders up front, we, nobody would know about UGG because I wouldn't have done it. Right, because people would have said no, right? Yeah. 
All right. So what happened? What happens from there? So you, you have minimal sales in the first year. These cl- people you expected to buy don't buy. What happens then? I got three, three years of summer jobs because it was just dinkling along 5,000, 10,000. The third year, I think we did 20,000 and our capital ran out. And that was like the first time I thought about giving up the business. But I did an interesting thing. I, I had a beer with one of my buddies who owned a surf shop. And I was telling him my dilemma that sales weren't happening. And he called out to all these little young 12, 13 year old grommets who stored their surfboards in his shop. And he said, what do you guys think? And they all went, oh man, that's fake. Those models in those ads, they can't surf. And I realized I'd been sending the wrong message to my target market. I got a couple of young pro surfers who were just, they're just 16, 17 years old, just about to turn pro. And I started running ads with them and the sales went to (laughs) $200,000 in one season, purely because I nailed the marketing image. And I made it so cool. If these young kids, are, they'd read the ads and, oh, mom, I want a pair of Uggs for Christmas. And that was really what turned it around. But in that success came another disaster. We were out of money. So then my next deal was to split our 50% down to 25 and bring in another investor who bought in a container of boots, which was 120000 bucks. Okay. And so we, we did that for another three or four, no, what, what, two seasons. And then sales were really starting to catch on. Now, California was really getting hot for UG. But then he, you know, we ran out of his money. And so, it, and, and the problem is that he thought he could just double his money by buying a container of boots, but he didn't realize the overhead and the marketing and all the stuff that goes on. So he wanted out. And then I was stuck between him and getting new investors in and, the new one is this, I'm saying the trademark's worth $100,000. No, no, the trademark's worth nothing without our money. And so we ended up, I did a deal to buy my partner out, both partners out, and where I was on the hook for paying them royalties. And then I joined with a third group out of Anaheim. And there were three guys who were going to bankroll it for the next phase, which was going to be a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And I was absolutely stoked. Even though I was only going to get 25% of the company, I now had three other guys in the business. And part of the deal was I I didn't have to run the company anymore. They were going to do that. All I did was go on the road and be the salesman. And I thought all my problems are over now with this new round of financing. And it lasted about three days. I, I fixed up the warehouse, moved all the inventory into the new building. And then I went down to Huntington Beach to my first sales call as a 100% salesman. And I walked in the door and I think his name was Chris says, Hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning and and they said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you're kidding me. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. And part of the deal was that, that I had this little trademark lawsuit I was in that they wanted me to finish that before I actually got my certificate for the 25%. Okay. And I called up the guys in Anaheim. I said, what the hell are you telling people? They said, what do you mean? I said, you tell them I don't own the company. And they go, well, you don't. You haven't finished the trademark lawsuit. And oh, man. I just went into this huge depression. And for two or three days, I moped about having lost the business. And there was a... No, it was a great time to give up again after all these troubles I'd had. 
And I ended up after about the third or fourth day, I remember I was turning off the television one night, lying on the floor on my back, and I rolled over on my hands and knees and started crawling to the bedroom. And my wife, who was a really quiet person, just said, you get up now and walk to bed like a man. <laughs> and scared the shit out of me. And, and I, I, I stood up and I, and I it was like coming out of a fog. And I thought, oh, my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin company. And that is, again, I attribute that to my spirit inside again, giving me clarity. And I slept like a baby that night. And the next day I had a choice. What am I going to do? And I was meditating again. Would I be a business broker or a real estate agent or accountant? Never. And I thought, I really have come to love sales. So what can I sell? And these goosebumps hit me. And I thought, shit, I love Ugg boots. So I, I ate humble pie and I went back up to the guys at Anaheim and said, look, I may never own the company, but I really want to get a pair of Ugg boots on every single person's feet. And so I went back on the road and they agreed not to tell people I'd sold the company. And about a month later, I got back to the warehouse and Neil, the owner, one of the owners, he handed me a check for 5,000 bucks and says, that's your commissions. And that was the first money I'd ever pulled out of the business. And <laughs> the next month I got a check for 10 grand and the next month another check for 10,000. And I realized I've come to love all these little philosophical sayings that I've learned over the years. And that in this instance, it was like your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings. Because here I was, lost the company, but I'm making more money than ever. I'm on the road with all my surf shop buddies and I'm having a ball playing golf in the summer and surfing and making all this money. And uh, that became my story for the next couple of years. It was, it was amazing. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycomfort.com slash workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back for the show. So it's interesting. I want to like I want to break down a couple of things for our listeners on the deal side and what happens with the companies. And also, uh, there was something I remember you said when when I heard you speak. So this is a, an issue that a lot of companies go through, right? Raising capital, having the capital run out. Mm -hmm. How do you find other investors? Will the original people put in more money? No. How do, if, so, if so, how do you take them out? Yeah. Taking out partners you talked about, I mean, that's a deal, right? How did you decide to buy out your partners? And then, so these are experiences that a lot of companies have. And, and in fact, this is often, but it's not unusual for a founder to lose control of, of a company. Yeah. And you actually, you actually got to the point where at, there was a point where you had zero equity left. And I don't think you specifically said it on this call, but I remember, do I remember correctly from one of your talks that when you said you went back to them, you had actually quit before your wife said with your wife, you had told them you'd originally said, I'm out of here. Wasn't that, isn't that true? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was, I, I just went silent for three or four days. Got it. I didn't quit, but I didn't also 
you know, come back to work either. <laughs> I got it. Got it. Got it. You just disappeared for a little while. Yeah. So I love that. Yes. I love, so you got through it and I love the, the conversation of how you get these goosebumps and how the truth comes from inside. But I also love the fact that it's great when we have people who support us and sometimes call us forth in moments when we, you know, when, when we may not be there ourselves yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very valuable. That's and great. the irony is that here I was for the next three years out on the road, and now I'm developing a sales force across the country. You know, I've got about 30 sales reps, and business is doing really well. We've branched out of surfing, and now we're into snowboarding and skiing. And I was trying to figure out what are kids back in New York and Chicago and Michigan do, and, and it, I realized that they all play hockey in the winter. So I got into the hockey uh, retail market, and, and that was fantastic because all the moms who have to sit in the malls were, were buying Ugg boots for their kids, and then the moms are buying them from this for themselves, and it really became a vibrant business. And I made 80000 the next year and 120 the next year and 150 the next year, and back then that was a shitload of money. Yeah, And I was loving my life as a non-owner. And over those three years, I, I put up nearly 2 million frequent flyer miles just traveling with all the sales reps. So I was getting to know every buyer all across the country. And then the weirdest thing happened. But Neil, the one main owner, had bought out the other two guys. So he owned 100% of it now. And he said, hey, Brian, come on in next week. We're going to get the lawyers in and we're going to issue you 25% of stock. And, oh, man, I was in heaven because I finished the trademark lawsuit and everything. And we bought company cars for each other and we got life insurance policies on each other. And I was all set to come in next week. And, and my wife called me on the car phone over the weekend. And she goes, oh, Brian, Neil's just died. Wow. And my life crashed again because here I was on the verge of getting my company back. And now I didn't own it any, I still didn't have any of it. And now his widow, who never set foot inside the warehouse, owned 100% of it. And so I had another come to Jesus meeting when I figured my livelihood's tied up here. So I went up and I talked to her the next day and said, look, I'll, I'll offer my life for the next six to nine months to try and save the business. And that began the longest six or eight months of my life because I had to try and raise money. And the weirdest thing is that the banks, even though we were now eight or nine, nearly 10 years in business, the banks are all saying, oh, it's a fad. It won't be around next year. And I go, but wait a minute. Everybody loves these. Oh, but you've been lucky. It's a fad. And so it was really difficult to raise money conventionally. And the investment bankers that I approached, they saw zero income for nine months and then this huge spike for October, November, December. And that scared the heck out of them. So they weren't interested. So it, it went through all the way through October. You know, it was like April, May, June. July was really starting to get desperate because I had to deliver in September. My original supplier, the guy that we'd been buying boots off all this time, he started to jump ship thinking I wasn't going to be able to pull it together. And I was making up all these orders, 10,000 pairs. I'd send them down to him and go, hey, George, it's going to be fantastic. You trust me, I'll get the money. And he was a little nervous. And bit by bit, I started losing faith that he was ever going to come through. And it got to September, October. No, I'm wrong again. It was July, August. 
and the big trade show that kicks off the season was in September. And the, I, as a large dis, last ditch effort, I thought, who could benefit from me being alive? And I figured out that tanneries in, in Australia should be really hot on this. And I found one who was really interested, but he, his name was Gordon. And I said, I've been working with this George Bircher in, in Western Australia. I just need some, some skins to get started. And, and he was so close for four or five days to backing me, but he, he eventually didn't. And so I left Australia without any deal to, for production. And then it was September. I had to go to the trade show and I talked to my wife. I said, if we do this we, and we make sales, we're not going to be able to ship anything. And we had about two and a half million bucks worth of orders on the books. And I had no idea where we were going to get production from. So I ended up um, going up to the trade show and setting up and putting all last year's product out. And in the meantime, my sales rep had told me about another group that was selling sheepskin boots in California and that they were a windsurfing company. And I thought, you know, they can't be much competition. And so anyway, I set the booth up at the trade show and I, I figured I'm going to go find that windsurfing company and figure out where they're at and what they're selling. And I walked over towards their booth and I stopped short because there was all of my production everything that I'd ordered with different labels on them. The label was called thugs, which I thought was really appropriate. And they actually, do I remember correctly? They actually cut a deal with your original manufacturer, right? Wow. Yeah. And my manufacturer, George never told me. So I I was totally blindsided and went through the motions of the show. I talked to my wife and I said, we're not going to tell anybody but on Monday after the show, we'll call all my best retailers and tell them to buy the thugs because it's our own product anyway. And so after we packed the show up, I got home back to San Diego. And, and the last call I made was to Gordon at the Tanner. And I said, listen, Gordon, I really appreciate all the help trying to get this going. But George has done an end run around me and I'm out of business. And he was sad and we went to bed. And about two o'clock in the morning, the phone rings and I pick it up and he goes, Brian, it's Gordon. Screw George, I'll get you all the boots you need. (laughs) And just like, how's this for a deal? No handshake, nothing in writing. I sent all the patterns down and he duplicated them, sent them out to about four or five manufacturers and he cranked up his tannery. And after about two weeks, we started getting 2,000 pairs on a Friday, then 5,000 pairs. And then all through October, November, December, every Friday, we got 5,000 pairs in. And at least we stayed alive. We threw away over a million dollars worth of orders at wholesale. And, but the thing is, we stayed alive. And the product was pretty shitty compared to the other stuff that I'd had because yeah. I had so many years to work on product development. But didn't matter because there was boots out there with UG labels and UG was still alive. So that was just one of the, it was the best deal. Just one Aussie to another saying, hey, you got screwed. I'm not going to let that happen. That became the deal of the century for me. Wow. And he continued to be your manufacturer for uh, a while after that, right? Uh, or yeah, yeah, the other. Wow. All the way through till I sold the company. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And listen, it's funny because there are industries in which 
It's rare that people do deals on handshakes in these days, but it still happens. Mm-hmm. In the diamond district in New York, they, they lend people diamonds all the time. And, and then even in other industries, that's why business relationships matter and reputation matters. The relationships are critical. And my best deals have all been done with people who had good intent. It doesn't matter what documents you can prepare for a deal. If someone's out to screw you, it's going to happen. That's absolutely right. Brian, one of the things I say as a lawyer, which you may not, you may think I'd be big on, I am big on documenting deals, but I say that the documenting only serves two purposes. One is the one that people think about, which is that it tells you what your legal rights are. If somebody does end up screwing you and you can sue them and whatever. But the the truth is that's that's not what you want to be doing. And often if somebody's a real crook, they're not going to have any money. You can't find them, whatever it is. The second thing it does though, that's important is that it helps get what, what us lawyers call a meeting of the minds. Like it really, like the process of documenting a deal will help to try to make sure that there was a true understanding, common understanding, so there wasn't any misunderstanding. But I always say, listen, once the deal is signed, ideally, in the old days, when I first started practicing, you say, put it in a file drawer. Now I say, you, just, you, you file it online. And hopefully you never have to look at that document again because business deals are made on an ongoing basis based upon relationship, not based upon legal agreements. Absolutely, yeah. And having that commonality of destiny is the critical thing. You both have to figure out what the goals are. And I wrote in my book at the very end, because that was 10, 15 years after I sold the company, and I realized as much as I hated these people at the time, and there were several investment groups that I really hated, I realized that they were all trying to do the best deal they could for themselves. Yeah. And I didn't take the time to understand what their end goal was, right? Their end goal was quite clear when they signed the documentation. They weren't out to screw me. They just figured out where they were going. And I was just a part of the piece. And so I've come to not look at them as crooks anymore, but people I should have got to know better before I did the deal to try and understand, are we both seeing the same mountain that we're going to climb? Because quite often I'm looking at my mountain and they're looking at theirs. And <laughs> eventually you've got to split up. That's right. That's right. And, do you, you know, I always talk about in negotiations, do the, what are your objectives, what are their objectives, and do the objectives meet? And just because they don't meet doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means they have different objectives. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. So eventually, not only were you saved there and did you get that, you stayed alive by putting out some product, but then you really you really grew the company. And, and I don't think anybody's, anybody's heard of thugs in a while. No, they, they were, I don't even know where their product ended up because I never saw them in the marketplace. And here's the kicker, right? So after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year, two really weird things happened. Um, the customs broker screwed up and he shipped... 2,000 pairs of thugs to me and 1,000 <laughs> pairs of my boots up to the other guy. And he was up in San Clemente, which was about an hour away. So I agreed to go up and swap them around. And I was driving back home and I was thinking, how come we couldn't keep boots in our warehouse for 24 hours? Every Saturday morning we were stripped clean because they, all the retailers were driving into our factory, picking up whatever they could to take back to their stores. So we were clean every Saturday morning and the thugs warehouse, which was twice as big as ours was floor to ceiling full of sheepskin boots after Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized the loyalty of my customers was so strong that they threw away nearly $2 million worth of sales at retail rather than join with somebody who they knew knocked me off. 
So that was an incredible revelation on the, the power of customer service. But the, the bigger fluke was that the life insurance policy paid out on Neil and it was just enough money for me to buy the company 100% back from his widow <laughs> where she got full value for the season's profits plus all full value for all the assets. And had I left it to her and walked away at the beginning of the year, she would have got zero. Just having the faith to hang in there against all those odds paid off for me where I now I was still broke, but I owned 100% of UG again. Who, who could have ever seen that coming? Yeah, who would have, listen, if it didn't really happen to you and it was in a movie, people would say, oh, that's not realistic. That could have happened in real life, right? No, um, it was amazing. It was, I love it. And, and, and I feel blessed and lucky, but boy, I could have walked out several times during the course of building the UG brand. There was so many times when it was looking hopeless that I could have walked away, but just having the faith that there's another deal that can be made that can keep me alive is really what every entrepreneur has to have the passion and the persistence for because as long as you got the passion there's a way to make it work and that's why i think your speaking in your book resonates so much with entrepreneurs because i don't know and and brian this is about me that i'm very active in the entrepreneurial community through entrepreneurial organization yeah. in other ways so i see and my clients are entrepreneurs so I hear the stories and what it seems like from the outside is never the case. And everybody's had a journey. It may not be like yours. It's different. It's their own journey, but there's always ups and downs on the path. I've had my ups and downs as an entrepreneur. Everybody has. Yeah. So I think, so I think people really resonate with that. And I think one of the things that makes us different about entrepreneurs is that people who are actually entrepreneurs would, there were so many opportunities in your journey that went with it. It would have been so easy to quit. Yeah, for sure. But do you want to hear the best deal I made? Absolutely. Okay. There's a little bit of a backstory here, right? So when I started out in those first couple of years where I, I was clueless, I was selling boots out of the back of my van at Malibu and had a really good little retail business going. And two or three spaces up was another guy called Doug Otto. And he was selling these neoprene sandals. They were called triple, they were called triple deckers because they were pink, yellow and pink neoprene with a like a thong type thing and we used to see each other on the road for years and we'd always joke with each other hey you should buy me out oh i can't afford it (laughs) (laughs) and we would joke around like that fast forward to 18 years and i've just done a deal with i I was referred to oprah via trudy styler who was sting's wife because we've been shipping boots to her for years and she one day called me up and said, Brian, I need a big favor. I've just been to a seminar. It's changed my world. And can you get me the most perfect set of boots? And here's the address, Oprah Winfrey. And so I sent boots to her and she immediately ordered more boots for everyone in her staff. And we had developed a really good image with the product. And we'd just come off a $15 million season and the pre-orders were looking like it was going to be a 20 to $25 million season coming up next year. And I had absolutely no way to finance this increase in production. Mm. And so I knew I was you know, probably going to be out of business again. <laughs> but I was going to a trade show called The Super Show in Atlanta, Georgia. And my buddy Doug, who... I, I mentioned earlier, he got the license for T- Tiva Sandals. You're probably familiar with them. Sure. And he took his company public on Teva 
and I knew he was sitting on about 25, 30 million bucks in cash, right? I arrive at in Atlanta airport and way up the other end of, of the baggage claim is Doug. And I got those goosebumps again. And I went, oh, shit, it's perfect. So I walked up to him and we saw each other and we high-fived. And I said, Doug, if ever we're going to do it, man, now's the time. You die every winter. My company dies every summer. Let's put them together, man. Just buy me out. And we had the accountants talking that afternoon. And with all the legal documentation that needed to be done by the end of the season, he bought me out for cash. So it was like going public without going public. It was phenomenal. Wow. Wow. There's so many themes that, that I hear in your story. Obviously, there's a theme of, of, of persistence and always fighting through and getting up. But also, every deal that you've done, really, like we said earlier, that's another long-term relationship, right? One of the things I talk about authentic negotiating, authentic deal-making, but I also talk about authentic business relationships. Yeah. And for me, I feel like that's a big part of your story, right? These, these aren't strangers. In every situation, it's somebody that you knew or you got to know, and this is your final sale was a guy you knew for a long time. Yeah. It come, comes back to trust. The Gordon Jackson at the tannery trusted me. Just Doug trusted me to not try and do a weird deal around him. And, and everything just went beautifully because of the relationships. Great stuff. I love the story. It's really, so listen, folks, if you have an opportunity to see Brian speak, if he's coming to your area, you've gotten a piece of it here. But it's such, a, it's such an inspiring story. And also his book, The Birth of a Brand, is just a brilliant read. So Brian, yeah. before I ask you my last question, if people do want to find out more about you, find out about you speaking, find out about the book or anything else you got going on, what's the best place for them to, to find you, reach you, call you, whatever? Thanks. Yeah, the book is called The Birth of a Brand. And I just recently did the audio version because so many people today want to listen to the book rather than read it. Sure. And it was going to be my chance to revise and update it when I did the audio. And I read it through to do the edits. And in the end, I changed zero words. It was mm. The book is so damn good as a roadmap for entrepreneurs. And not just starting out, but it does include that. But also when you start to get into the five, ten, fifteen million dollar range, there's a whole set of different problems come up, which I help readers through. So that's called the birth of a brand on Amazon. And as far as speaking goes, obviously the the EO group that you brought me into is a group of business people who absolutely love my story. So if anyone's listening who would like me to come and speak to their company or their association or whatever you can find me at ug founder ugg founder.com and uh, all the contact information is there on my speaker page and i would love to hear from you if you think i can show up and and give you a really entertaining story for an hour or so Oh, that's great. My last question, it's interesting that I asked the same last question of every guest on the podcast and I feel we've talked a lot about it in your case, but I'd love to, I'd love to ask it anyway. As one of my highest values is authenticity and it's the reason my book is called Authentic Negotiating. And, uh, and, we, and for me, authenticity is something- By, by the way, your, your, your book is one of the best books that I've ever read on negotiating. I've given it out to a bunch of people. It's a phenomenal book. Um, I, pr I appreciate you saying that. I, I really do. That's so nice of you. And so for me, the conversation of authenticity is is not about 
morals or ethics or some outside force. It's it is that internal self awareness. All right, and making your business. You know, you you talk about the goosebumps you got, right? And for me, that's a signal of what's authentic and and what's guiding. So that's why I feel like you talked about it a lot. But I'd love to hear any last thoughts you have on the importance of authenticity and how it's how it's guided your life, and maybe how how do you tap into that authenticity? What do you have any practices or ways that you stay aligned? Sure. I've been a big believer in this spirit inside me, and I believe it's in every single one of us. That I don't know if your listeners are Bible people, but over and over again, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. And I, what I think he meant by that, he was being very literal. There is a spark of this pure God in every one of us. And that is an infallible truth meter. And every time I get really perplexed or down or whatever, I meditate and I go within and I, and I just ask for the truth of a, a situation. What the hell should I do here? And it's uncanny how after a while, it doesn't happen instantly, but after a while, you just get this feeling that this is the way I should go. And I've followed that. And, and I'll tell you what, there's times when I haven't followed, I've had the feeling and I go, no, that's not right. It just can't be. And I've gone against it. And every time I've gone against it, I've paid the price. But every time I've gone with it, things seem to have worked out. So there is some sort of internal guide in us that knows the direction. We just got to get better at tuning into it. I, I so believe that as well. And, and it's interesting. We've talked about some of the themes in your story of the, the persistence in the business relationships and whatever. But at least for me, and you can tell me if you disagree, the single biggest theme is you trusting that inner wisdom and, and tapping into that guidance. And I think even with all the other stuff, the level of success you have with UG and now as a speaker, et cetera, wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been close to the same if it weren't for that trust and that tapping into that authentic place. Yeah, and, uh, nobody nobody would have heard of Arg if I hadn't uh, trusted in the first time. I love it. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Corey, it was a thrill. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.